Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled. Missoula is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and read more about this week's show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're recording the trail less traveled on the eastern coast of Australia. We are just outside of Brisbane and pretty near the coast, but you might hear the faint call of birds. It's uh, late afternoon, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Blake Chapman, who has been incredibly busy recently with shark science, so I'm just really honored that she has made the time and energy to join me on the trail less traveled. So I just want to say thanks, Blake. Thanks so much for coming out and for seeing me and for giving me the opportunity to be on your show. A little bit about Blake. Dr. Blake Chapman grew up in Maryland on the east coast of the United States. She completed her undergraduate degree in biology at James Madison University before moving to Australia to undertake postgraduate studies in shark neuroscience, ecology, and development. She completed her PhD in 2009 and was awarded the University of Queensland's Dean's Award for Research Higher Degrees thesis. Blake then spent a number of years working for a large public aquarium where she managed the animal health and rescue and rehabilitation programs. This allowed her to work very closely with the aquarium's entire animal collection on a daily basis. She then shifted her focus towards science communication as a means of helping to promote and advance critical research findings to a wide variety of audiences, from students to academics. Blake also continues to research sharks and now focuses primarily on negative human-shark interaction, more commonly referred to as, quote, shark attacks, end quote, and global mitigation efforts. She published her first book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, in November of 2017. She continues to work with the media to promote a more realistic picture of sharks and how they interact with humans, as well as a greater understanding of sharks more generally, their importance, and the various mitigation measures being used and explored. She also focuses on educating children and creating a smarter, stronger, and more environmentally-minded next generation. Blake is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic. My face hurts because I'm so excited right now to be sitting here with you, Blake. I've loved sharks since I was a little girl. I am so excited to hear your story. So my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was sharks and adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Maryland on the east coast of the United States. And Maryland is not necessarily known for its sharks. I grew up in a county that was right outside of Washington, D.C., so sharks were not typically on on the mind of people there. I did develop, from a very early age, a love of the water. I was a swimmer from about four years old in a competitive swim program, and that was where I spent my summers. Every day, I would go to the pool, and my friendships revolved around the people that I knew at the pool. That was just, that was my thing and my activity. So I really loved swimming, and I loved the water. We would also, every year, spend a week over the summer break at Ocean City, and then eventually that location changed a bit, but Ocean City was really our home vacation. It was a really special time for me, because it was one week where my family was together, my dad worked pretty long hours, and so it was a week where we could just be together, and my family was everything to me, so it was just a really special and really important time. Yeah, you know, the beaches were so crowded. It's not like what we see here in Australia, but it was just special. 
And I remember going out and going body surfing with my dad. And this is really notable because my dad hates the water. He's absolutely terrified of the water. But I didn't realize this until I was much older. He never let on about it, I think, because he knew how much fun I would have. And so, yeah, we go body surfing and we'd bring all these inflatable little rafts and go out in the oceans. And I loved it. And there was no fear. There was nothing in my mind. To me, it was a completely different environment to what we see now. And I really hope that kids growing up can have that same love of the ocean and just go out there and do these things and have these amazing experiences with their family without having a fear of sharks, because I certainly didn't. And I'm alive and well to tell about it now. And I know that that's not the case in 100% of circumstances, but in 99.99999, it is. And they're magic experiences. And that's something that I really want to preserve for for people to be able to use and enjoy the water like I did. Dr. Blake Chapman, can you tell us about some of the efforts that you're making towards communicating with families and communicating with children? What are you telling them so that they do feel that and they do have that opportunity? I've spent a lot of time recently really talking to kids and wanting to engage with them. So this comes down to some work that I did in my book. I'm not a psychologist and I'm not, I don't work in clinical studies or anything like that, but I really wanted to understand why people were so scared of sharks because it just baffled me. I, I'm a scientist at training and at heart and I work based on stats and statistics and I just couldn't put together why when the risk of sharks and something bad happening as a result of sharks, when it's so low, so just almost astronomically low, why people are so scared. So it was a really fun project for me to look into the psychology behind fear and shark attacks. And I must say, there's nothing known. No studies have actually shown anything to do with sharks. Um, some have tried, but they're just there's not enough information out there, which is amazing because it's such a prevalent fear and something that people talk about and that's having such major consequences now in our society. But we relate back to the fear of animals, so biological sources especially. So snakes and spiders are the main things that these studies have been done on. But really what it came down to is that fear of sharks isn't an inherent fear. We're not born with it. But as human beings, we have evolved to protect ourselves and to defend ourselves. And one of the ways that we do that is to fear things that can potentially harm us. And so this is a really, really deep-seated emotion in us. It has come from our very earliest ancestors. It's in, it's basically so deep in our brain that it's not anywhere near our conscious thought. It's completely subconscious, and it's in the entire mammalian lineage. It's something that is just built into us. And so what this means is, well, we're not born with these fears. They're very easy to acquire. It doesn't have to be us. We don't have to have this, and it doesn't have to be a real experience. So this is why things like the media and even coming down to movies or documentaries can have such an impact on people, and this is something that we need to realize and recognize. Documentaries, for example, they're a great example. They often go and say, you know, we want to tell people what it is, and people think that they're getting a really clear, really realistic impression into the wild and into these natural environments when that's not necessarily what's happening. There's some great footage and it's great for awareness in some cases, but we're also really putting so much emotion and sensationalism into these things and we're showing very targeted messages for what we want to be showing people. For example, 
a feeding frenzy of sharks, which can happen, but to get this footage, they have to create these things. And so it's not actually natural footage that you're seeing. These events, for most part, have been created for filming, for the cameras. So it's just coming back to these things. So coming back to our fear, seeing things, seeing the movie Jaws, for example, sparked fear in people who had never set foot in the water, never even heard of a shark before. All of a sudden, they had a reason to fear these animals because they had this. And the human brain, we learn by example. We learn by learning and association. And this is what has protected us. We didn't need to be the one who was eaten by the lion to know that lions can eat you, so we need to be careful around them. And it saved us. It's allowed us to evolve and to still be alive on the planet today. So it's really good, but it's also really bad in that it gives us a false sense of not being safe when in actuality we really are. So what it does is it prepares us. It prepares us for potential risk. A lot of times you'll hear about gut instinct or, you know, I just had a feeling of something. So if you're walking down a dark alleyway and something doesn't feel right, that's this subconscious part of your brain kicking in to say, this is something that could potentially put me at risk. And it's the exact same thing as what we get when we are in an environment that there could be sharks in. So if we've had this fear, if we've had something that's come up in our lives that has given us a reason to fear sharks, then it's very easy and we immediately relate to that. So what I do with my education is the way to sort of beat this is they found that you can almost inoculate or immunize kids against these really easily acquired fears by giving them either positive or even neutral experiences before they have something that could be considered a negative experience. So what I aim to do is to go out and talk to kids and just give them a really fun, really entertaining first exposure to sharks. Or it might not be their first exposure, but an early exposure so that they then have this to fall back on. So if they see a news story that talks about a shark bite, or if they hear something from the media, or if they watch Jaws or another movie that relates to shark bites, that they can have a bit more of a realistic view or a positive experience with sharks to buffer that. So their first impression or their overwhelming impression of sharks isn't negative. So I try to go out and I do everything I can. I'm, I'm a naturally really introverted person, but I get around kids and I'll dance and I'll be up waving my arms. We do lots of interactive activities. I get the kids up participating and doing things and they're laughing and hopefully having a great time. I like to think I'm funny. And so hopefully the kids do too. And hopefully they just have a great time. And then they just have this foundation to get them through whatever they might develop in the rest of their lives. And I encourage them to go home and to continue to think about sharks and to talk to their classmates, to go in and say, I bet I know something that you don't know. And to to have this sense of pride around what are some really incredible animals and to be able to take that along with them and, and develop that and turn it into a really great experience as opposed to something that they're going to be afraid of for no reason for the rest of their lives. That is the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman. Blake has been researching sharks here in Australia for the past 15 years. She's originally from Maryland in the United States. Blake is the sharks editor-at-large for Australian Geographic, and her first book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, came out in November of 2017. Blake, let's talk a little bit more about your book since we're on that uh, topic. Let's talk about some of the myths behind shark attacks and maybe some misunderstandings as well. I think the greatest myth that I really wanted to tackle and pretty much the whole reason that I started to think about writing the book was just 
the likelihood of someone being bitten. We hear about it all the time, all the time. Our media tells us that these things are happening on a daily basis. So I get media alerts about shark bites and shark attacks and shark research, and I get multiple hits a day from these things. So we hear about them all the time, when in reality, they're really rare incidents, and they do happen. And that's something that we can't avoid talking about. They do happen. And we need to to take measures to accept that they do happen. But we also have to accept that these are very rare events. And a lot of the things that we're doing around the risk and the fear is probably unjustified. So just bringing perspective back, it was the main thing, I just wanted to bring some perspective back. And everyone has heard all the different cliches and quotes about what's more likely to kill you than a shark. But in reality, those things are true. Fatalities as a result of shark bites are incredibly rare. We had four globally last year. And so that number has decreased remarkably. Our annual number of four, or it was six the year before, is less than half of the 10-year average. So over a course of 10 years, it's halved and then even less. So we're doing a lot of things right. There's a lot of questions around why these things are decreasing, but let's take some wins and say, you know, we are we are responding really well when bites happen. Our medicine has evolved so greatly that we can respond and we can do what we need to do to help these people. And as a result, we're saving lives. But every time we save the life of a human who has had this interaction, then we're also taking steps to conserve sharks as well. As these things become less and less, then the fear is going to reduce and it's not going to be, some people feel that they have to retaliate against. So yeah, just the biggest myth is that they're not happening every day and multiple times a day, as we hear in the media. There was one study that showed that a single newspaper in Western Australia was reporting on a single fatal shark bite, an average of 45 times in the two months after the incident. So this is one newspaper is publishing 45 different stories on a single event that happened. And the range went up to 73 times. So we're hearing about these things over and over and over again. And coming back to fear and how our brain works, that's telling us through this subconscious pathway that we can't control, that these things are happening all the time. And again, we do have to accept that they happen and we have to take measures into place to protect ourselves and to minimize the risk. But we also, it would be great if we were able to comprehend and to bring the reality of the situation back, especially in terms of taking mitigation measures or in policy. That is the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman, who's talking about her first book that came out in November 2017, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear. Uh, I do want to point out that uh, Dr. Chapman doesn't, you don't like that word, the, um, the A word. We don't really, a lot of scientists I'm interviewing recently didn't like the, the word attack. Um, so is there, uh, can we talk about misunderstanding a little bit and maybe that word, the A word? There's a lot of conversation going on, and I'll even go so far as to say debate around the word attack. And I was actually just down at a shark conservation summit last week, and a couple colleagues and I, some healthy banter over the term. We are trying to get away from the term attack in general, because I think it's not helpful, really. But I've spoken to a number of people who have been affected by shark bites. And I have to admit, these are people, and we are very emotional beings. And in some of the situations that I've had described to me, I can guarantee you I would be saying it was an attack as well. So I think 
in my mind, what I would consider an attack, it does happen, but it's very rare. What I encourage people to do is to just be honest. You know, we have so many words in the English language and we don't have to rely on one for sensationalism or to get hits on media articles or anything like that. If a shark comes up and bites someone, let's call it a shark bite. If a shark comes up and nudges a boat, let's call it a shark sighting or a shark encounter. We don't have to fall back on shark attack because that's the only thing we know. We're much smarter than that and we can do a lot better. So I think that by just being honest about what's happened, we'd really quickly change a lot of the perception that's out there. That's my whole thing, is changing perception based on reality. And I just want to bring people back to the reality. So why can't we just say what's happening? I think that that would be a really, really big step in the right direction. And just call it what it is. Awesome. That is the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman. And we're recording here at her home on the eastern coast of Australia in Brisbane. Blake's first book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, was released in November of 2017, and Blake is the current Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic. Blake, Dr. Chapman, it's now time for a song. So can you share a song with us that reminds of your early childhood? All right, so I must admit I was (laughs) on the fence for this one. I did think of the Jaws theme, but I don't think that that really represented my early childhood. So I'm going to go with the Little Mermaid under the sea. Good day, mate. This is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Travelled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp, family farmed, organically grown, tested, and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. The rich volcanic mountain soils, dry climate and directly sourced mountain spring waters are what gives Desert Green uniquely pure and powerful CBD products. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, MANDELA, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio. We're recording The Trail Less Traveled on the eastern coast of Australia. I'm speaking today at the home of Dr. Blake Chapman in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, she published her first book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, in 2017, and continues to work with the media to promote a more realistic picture of sharks and how they interact with humans, as well as a greater understanding of sharks more generally, their importance, and the various mitigation measures being used and explored. She also focuses on educating children and creating a smarter, stronger, and more environmentally-minded next generation. Blake is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic. Dr. Chapman, I'd like to ask you now if you could tell us the story of the shark. Sharks are one of those amazing success stories. We have so many stories in nature, and especially at the moment of unsuccessful animals. But sharks are the complete opposite. Up until human influence, there was pretty much nothing that could stop these animals. They have shown us amazing capacity to survive and to evolve. So sharks have been around on the planet longer than just about anything else. If you can think of a vertebrate, I can almost guarantee you that sharks have been around longer. So they were swimming around long before the dinosaurs evolved, and they survived when the dinosaurs didn't. I think there's maybe one or two other things, one or two other vertebrates that probably you haven't even heard of that were around before sharks. So the sharks that 
first evolved are no longer swimming in our oceans, but they are descendants of those very first sharks that we still see today. And obviously there's been quite a few changes. They've tried a lot of different strategies. We have some really big sharks like the Megalodon that a lot of people are aware of, some smaller sharks, there's eel-like sharks, but they've all just come into play and formed what we have now, which is a group of animals that are just absolutely incredible survivors. And I think that for anybody who doesn't like sharks, you haven't learned about them because it's almost impossible to not respect an animal like a shark once you understand what they've been through and where they've come from. They're just amazing animals. And again, I don't ask people to love sharks. I don't ask everyone to want to go out there and swim with them. All I ask is that people, that they educate themselves and gain a realistic impression of these animals and that they also consider what sharks can teach us. So we have over 530 really species of sharks that we know about and that number is going up. We're finding new species of sharks regularly, which is exciting. It's, it's very exciting. But what we have started to learn from these animals is that they're just survivors. So everything about these animals is perfectly evolved to their situation. And again, before humans, there's very little that could stand in the way of these animals. Everything else they adapted to, and they found ways of surviving and becoming amazing at what they do. And what they do is they survive and reproduce and get on with their their day, really. They're from a huge range of environments. So pretty much everywhere we looked in the oceans, we found sharks. They're in Arctic waters. They're in tropical, subtropical, temperate, shallow, oceanic, deep sea. They've gone into the rivers. We have some freshwater species. We have brackish water species. We have hypersaline species. So they are just everywhere that there's been an opportunity, they have found a way to be incredible. And they, I mean, there's so much diversity in these 530 plus species of sharks that it's just incredible. We have sharks that are 21 centimeters long as fully grown adults. And we have sharks that are 12 meters long or even more in, in more historic times. And so We have sharks that eat plankton. The biggest fish in the ocean eat plankton. We have sharks that eat marine mammals. We have sharks that eat everything that they can do. So, yeah, they've just found a way to be good. And if you look at them, and and science has taken notice of this, it's not just, you know, all the crazy marine biologists who love these animals that think that they're amazing. Everybody who's tried to look at them for one reason or another has come out on top. So we've used them for aerodynamics because their bodies are so streamlined, and they've taught us about that. And we have planes that are modeled after them. We have coatings that go on boats that help the boats go faster in boat racing. Medicine has just gone nuts over sharks lately because they have this incredible ability to heal and this all comes down to survival so for a while there was this myth going around that sharks can't get cancer and they can but what came out of this was that people started looking at their immune system and started looking at their cells and how they recover from things and it's just given us so much insight into ways that we might become better humans and have advances in our human medicine because of what we've learned from sharks. So sharks don't have bone. They're cartilaginous fish, which is a really interesting difference because a lot of our immune cells are made in the bone. So these animals, while they have the the earliest evolved species that has the same sort of immune system that we have, they make it in a different way. So it's, it's really interesting that we can learn so much from them, but we are. And they've touched everything. So there's veterinary 
advances that have been made. So a lot of dogs that have cancer will get shark cartilage and there's vitamins. There's just everything that you can think of where they've looked to sharks. Again, they have advanced the field. There's a new study that has looked at shark scales, which are incredible. They have dermal dentricles, so it's like these little teeth on their skin. So if you rub a shark from head to tail, it's very smooth. But if you go from the tail to the head, it's incredibly rough because they have these little scales. And they have a whole suite of purposes. Again, nothing is a mistake on sharks. They are so perfectly designed for their environment. It's just, it it sort of blows your mind to think about. But by studying the micro pattern of these scales, there's a new study that's shown that you can reduce bacterial load. So... This comes into play for things like hospital beds, where there's a huge amount of bacteria and microbes that are present in these environments. And so we rely on chemical disinfectants, which are generally not great for things other than (laughs) sterilizing environments. But through this pattern, this micro pattern designed based on shark scales, the bacteria just don't have the, the surface area to stick to. And so they can basically naturally reduce bacterial load. So again, just unbelievable advances that we're seeing all based on sharks. So again, I challenge people to go out there and learn about sharks and to understand them and to see all the benefit that they're bringing to our world as humans, you know, this really small view that we have of our world. And maybe that's what's going to win some people over. If, if we can realize that they're benefiting the human race, then maybe that's something that can get some people on side. But yeah, I challenge you to go out there and learn about them and not be fascinated and not be intrigued and to not start to respect them for what they are. That is the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman. She is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic. And her first book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, came out in 2017. She continues to work with the media to promote a more realistic picture of sharks and how they interact with humans, as well as a greater understanding of sharks more generally, their importance, and the various mitigation measures being used and explored. She also focuses on educating children and creating a smarter, stronger, and more environmentally-minded next generation. Blake, Dr. Chapman, this now ties in with a really cool new idea that I have. So I have questions that were submitted to me from students at a high school in Queensland, Australia. And I'm going to have them ask those questions to you. Yeah, so we'll start with the first one. Instead of the phrase shark attack and what that implies, what would be a better phrase to use? So instead of shark attack, I just really promote realism. So if a shark attacks you, and sometimes we have seen that that can happen. These are very powerful animals, and they do have the potential to be really top-order predators. Then, fair enough. But in an overwhelming percentage of the circumstances, these are not shark attacks. They're shark bites, or they're shark interactions, or they're shark encounters, or they're shark sightings. So, actually, the United States has the highest incident rate of shark attacks each year. And coming back, I say shark attacks because that's what they're generally called. But in very few of these situations is a significant injury even received. So I would argue very strongly that those are not shark attacks. They're shark bites or, again, just shark interactions. I suggest that we take a look at the situation and use whatever terminology is necessary to accurately describe what happened. Another question submitted from a student in Queensland. How can teenagers help spread the message, we don't need to fear sharks? I think this is a great question coming down to how to spread the message that we don't fear sharks. 
what I think is a really important statement to make first off is that we do have to respect sharks. So while I don't necessarily encourage people to fear sharks, I do understand why people fear sharks. But I also think that we do have to maintain a respect for them and we don't do whatever we want around them. We have to use caution when we're sharing their environment and to not put ourselves in situations where we could potentially come into contact with a shark that could cause us some danger. So we do have to be careful and be smart about how we act. But in terms of fearing an animal, I think really all we can do is to have some great experiences with them or at least have some neutral experiences. So I really encourage people to go to aquariums to see sharks swimming around. Uh, I'm a big advocate of aquariums and a big fan of what the work that they do and the education potential that they have there. So if you go to an aquarium and you see a shark swimming around, that's exactly what they're doing. They're swimming around. They're not in there in a mad feeding frenzy eating everything in the aquarium. I can guarantee you aquariums would not be a sustainable option if the sharks ate everything in there. But that's just not what they do. They're not these mad eating machines that just take over and go go crazy all the time. Sharks swim around. They eat when they need to. And there are times that they don't eat for days. They are not these insatiable eating machines that we think they are. So get a realistic perception of the animals. If you're a bit more adventurous, then go out snorkeling or diving in an area where there are sharks. Most of the time where you go, the sharks are going to be not dangerous at all. And so you can see some of the smaller reef sharks swimming around and they're amazing. And I can guarantee you it's going to be an excellent experience. You're going to go out and you're going to love it. And you're going to have a new perception of the sharks and a new reality of what these animals actually are. For people who are even more adventurous, there's a number of different opportunities to go out and see some of the larger, potentially dangerous species in a a reasonably controlled environment where tour operators get to know the animals. So sharks do have personalities. This is something that we do know and we understand. And so in a lot of these ventures where people go out and dive with sharks, it's because someone has taken the time to get to know the animals. And that provides that extra bit of safety on what would otherwise be quite a risky activity. But by getting to know the shark's personality, you can know if they're a more aggressive individual or if they're one that is quite relaxed and doesn't mind the presence of humans in their environment. So there's all these things that you can do to just go out there and understand sharks a bit better. And I think that that's how we're going to beat the fear. And one last question submitted from a student in Queensland. Social media is a major platform in our lives. How can students such as ourselves become involved with your messages on this platform? Social media is great. It's <laughs> it's also terrifying. So social media can be used in a really positive way. And I definitely encourage that. There's a lot of people out there who are posting realistic messages about sharks. And so going out there and finding those. But what you need to make sure is that you are finding the right people to follow and to read up on because there's also a lot of misinformation on the internet. So it just comes down to finding people who are presenting reality and truth and actual information in a positive light about sharks. We get enough of the negative press through the media. So again, it just comes down to being careful and then just talking about it and discussing it. 
you know, you're an advocate of storytelling and talking about these things and sharing knowledge. And that's what social media can do. And that's the real beauty of it is that it gives us a platform to talk about this and share our knowledge with people that in other circumstances we wouldn't get to. So it's just a really good way to do this and, and to share these experiences and to get a broader understanding because very few people have interactions with sharks. So the more we can promote those and the more we can talk about it, the better off we're going to be. That is the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman. We are recording here in her home in Brisbane, Australia. She is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic, and her book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, was released in 2017. She continues to work with the media to promote a more realistic picture of sharks and how they interact with humans. She also focuses on educating children and creating a smarter, stronger, and more environmentally-minded next generation. Dr. Chapman, you have a pretty big fan base of third graders in Kansas, and I know that you have more fans than just that. But let's go to Kansas for a question from one of the third graders. Maybe you have time for your favorite one that they asked. They submitted quite a lot, and you said that they're amazing questions. So what's your favorite one? Yeah, I got some really great questions from this class of third graders. I think one of my favorite ones was, do mom sharks have to teach their babies how to swim or are they born knowing how to swim? And I really like this question because it highlights a number of different aspects of sharks. So sharks don't have any parental supervision. No parental care is given. And a little known fact, I think, is that about 30% of sharks lay eggs. So there's all these differences in sharks. So they can be, again, they can be really small or really big. Some sharks even lay eggs. But again, there's no parental care by sharks. They literally have to come out biting. There's a little bit of a window where sometimes sharks can bunker down and just get a grasp of the world around them, surviving on yolk or whatever they need to do. But generally, they need to come out ready to go. So they're fully formed fully functioning, all of their sensory systems are working, and they're go, go, go. And I found this out the hard way in one circumstance where I was pulling a newborn wobbegong out of our tank. So the shark had just been born, and it was very small, and it would have been eaten by something else in the tank. So I was trying to pull it out to protect it, and it bit straight onto my finger. And I just remember thinking, I'm trying to help you. Why won't you let me help you? But, you know, I was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding because these guys have such sharp teeth, but they are born ready to protect themselves and ready to do what they do. It also highlights a difference between humans and sharks. So we're very much a fan of the things that resemble us. So we like things that we can associate with. And this is something that I try to beat in some of the educational programs that I do, because there have been studies to show that we conserve and we protect animals that are like us. So we have, you know, the cute and cuddly things, the mammals, all those things that we can relate to. You know, a lot of people say dolphins are smiling or our koalas are soft and cuddly and fuzzy. And uh, I don't know if you've seen a koala, but they can be so mean and aggressive. So it's until you get to know these animals. But one of the things that I do is I try to encourage kids to find links between sharks and themselves. So I often get them to draw a picture of themselves as a shark. I encourage them, depending on how old they are, there's different levels to it, but I encourage them to think about what they like in their lives. So do they like to sleep in in the morning or do they wake up early? Do they like to eat their food or are they really picky? And so all of these things 
I get them to think about how that would relate to them as a shark. You know, do they like warm water or cold water? And that dictates where they would live or if they are surface dwelling sharks or if they're deep sea sharks. Are they big or are they small? Because smaller sharks generally require less energy, whereas big sharks have to eat a lot to sustain their, their really large bodies. So it all comes down to this. And it's a way of, again, for different ages, including a lot of different lessons about sharks. But it also gives kids a way to relate to sharks. It lets them see them as another animal who likes to eat, who has to do all these things to survive. And I feel like it just brings them a bit closer and, and connects them to sharks a little bit. And then oftentimes I'll go through and I'll look at what they have and I'll ask them a lot of questions. You know, what color are you? Why do you have these coloration patterns? Does it give you an advantage? But we'll talk about it and I'll give them their spirit shark. So I'll say, okay, well, if you were a shark, I think that you would be this species because I can see this link there or I can see this link there. And so it just helps them. It brings it a bit closer to home and it gives them a way to relate to sharks. And that's something that I'm doing, again, just to try to break down some of the barriers of these animals being so different to us. That is the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman. She is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic, and her book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, was released in 2017. Dr. Chapman focuses on educating children and creating a smarter, stronger, and more environmentally-minded next generation. When we come back, we're going to learn about some of the current shark issues going on here in Australia, where we are recording right now. But Dr. Chapman, it's time now for another song. Okay, so the next song I've chosen is Somebody to You by The Vamps. Again, probably another quite interesting choice. But my family means everything to me, and they're my motivation for doing what I do. So my husband has given me the strength to do a lot of the things that I've done. He's, he's taught me how to back myself and believe in myself, which is something that I didn't have for quite some time. And so I feel like I owe a lot of what I am to him. And now I've got two amazing little girls. And it's just incredible the amount of love that you have and, and the drive that you have to be better for these people in your lives. So hopefully that's conveyed by the song choice. We're on location, recording in Brisbane, Australia. Brisbane is on the eastern coast of Australia, about halfway up. And we're speaking with Dr. Blake Chapman, who is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic. She is originally from Maryland, but has been here in Australia for over 15 years. Her first book, Shark Attacks, Myths, Misunderstandings, and Human Fear, was released in 2017. She continues to work with media to promote a more realistic picture of sharks and how they interact with humans. Blake, I'd like to talk to you now about some of the current issues regarding sharks in Australia. I have to say, a lot of people are very negative about a lot of things that are happening in our environment, and there's certainly reason for that. But I'd just like to start out by saying, in Australia, I think that we're actually doing a really good job. So we're not perfect at everything, and there are definitely things that we need to work on. But overall, we've got an amazing biodiversity of sharks here. We have about 180 different species of the 530. It really is a hot spot that we have in Australia, and we're very lucky to have this diversity. It's a big part of our, our culture and who we are. In most circumstances, we are doing great. There have been some negatives and some downfalls in that, but overall, we've recognized those and have put measures in place to help to turn it around and to fix things. So 
Yeah, I think that we're very lucky to have had the support from our governments and our peak bodies and our conservation groups, scientists, everyone who's been working on it, to have had the foresight to look into these things and to take action. And it's been really good. However, again, we aren't perfect. So unfortunately, and I'll show you, we have the second highest number of shark bites on a regular basis every year following America. But unlike America, we do have some very significant bites that cause major trauma. And we regularly on an annual basis have one or two fatalities. So the situation is a, a bit more extreme in that regard here. And it is something that is on the minds of a lot of people. And a lot of people say that it affects tourism. That's not something that's really been proven. But we do have to be careful because there is such a large media representation of these events. So it does have the potential to reach tourism markets and affect that. So as a result of the fear and the government feeling like it needs to take action, we have a number of different shark mitigation measures that are in place here. Again, this isn't the prime area of impact to shark populations, but it's one that I tend to try to address through my work. So in Queensland, I would definitely say that we're the worst. We have very traditional measures that we use here. We have beta drumlines and shark mesh nets. These were put in place in the 60s, the early 60s, and have pretty much not changed since then. So as you can imagine, the world is a different place as to what it was in the 60s. Everything has continued to change, yet we haven't taken on board any of the science or any of the new technology that's been developed to help us in this area. And so that's a bit sad. So these methods are very destructive, especially the nets. They're extremely destructive to the marine environment. There's a lot of bycatch and so a lot of non-targeted death of animals. And to me, that's unacceptable, especially this day and age. And if you look at surveys of the public, people don't want that. People are very much against it. But it's a little bit tricky because in Queensland, we have a great success rate. We have very few bites, which is obviously fantastic, but it also doesn't bring the conversation up. So in some other states where they're seeing a lot more bites and a lot more major trauma, it's a question on the top of people's minds. They want to know what's happening. And so they're asking questions. They're doing those checks and balances with the government. But because we hardly ever see bites here, People rarely talk about it, and I think that you'd find that most people don't realize what measures we have in place, and they probably don't even know that there are these nets out there killing wildlife on a daily basis. So it is a bit tricky. In other states, in New South Wales and Western Australia, we're actually being at the forefront of shark mitigation, which is excellent. So again, not everything is perfect, but I really think that the governments are doing a great job. They're consulting scientists. They're giving a lot of money to grants to research things, and they're trialing a lot of new technologies. So they are actively trying to be better. I wouldn't necessarily agree with all the, of the decisions that they made, but I think that we absolutely have to be commending them for trying. And you know, no one is ever going to be in agreement, and that's something that's really tricky when it comes to shark bite mitigation. Scientists can't even agree with each other. So how can we get a really unified message to our politicians when we can't even agree with each other? So it, it is a very complex and very challenging situation, and I just think that it's great that we're being proactive. There's a lot of new things that are coming up as the climate changes, as infrastructure changes the environments that sharks live in. 
we're going to continue to see changes in how sharks move and how sharks interact with humans. And so we have to be fluid in this space. We have to be trying new things and we have to be willing to say that didn't work. Let's start over again. And we are doing that here in Australia, which is great. You know, as a global hotspot for shark and ray diversity, and also as one of the leaders in shark bite incidents, people look to us to be a leader. And I'm really happy to say that I'm proud to to be here and that I think that we're giving a lot of people reason to look to us to be a leader. That's the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman. She is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic, and she continues to work with the media to promote a more realistic picture of sharks and how they interact with humans. Blake, you use the term baited drumlines, and so uh, we have listeners all over the world, and some of them are landlocked, some of them have never been to the ocean before. The word shark nets might make sense for some, like, okay, a net so the sharks can't go to the swimming area, but for people listening who don't know what a baited drumline is, can you explain that, please? So you brought up a couple of really important points. So baited drumlines are a mitigation measure. They're they're basically a fishing method for sharks. So there are really large hooks um, that are designed to catch large animals, and they're baited every day. So in different places around the world, the procedures are a little bit different, but it comes back to how often these lines are checked as to the success rate of them and especially the lethality of them. So both... Beta drumlines and nets are designed as lethal measures. They're designed to go out and kill sharks on the premise that reduced shark populations will lead to less bites. Interestingly, there's no proof of that. So there's nothing to justify that these measures are designed accurately or also that they're effective in actually doing that. And this is something that comes up quite often is that we automatically employ these methods, but there's nothing to show that they work. The drum lines are set. So there's a hook that's set in the water and then they're left to catch sharks. So depending again on the location, they could be left for 24 hours, 48 hours, or even 72 hours. Sharks need to keep swimming. So there are some species that don't need to, but a lot of, especially the bigger and more iconic species, need to keep swimming. And even for the ones who don't need to keep swimming, they can still wear themselves out. They often fight against the gear. And so there's a lot of ways that sharks can damage themselves on these drum lines. While there is a little bit of rope or lead on these drum lines, sharks can't conserve the energy. So they regularly have what's called a swim glide pattern, and it's a way that they conserve their energy while they continue to swim. And they can't do these things while they're on the nets. So again, they're, they're designed to be lethal measures, and they're designed to basically let the animals die on them, but they're not quick. Again, if lines are only being checked every 72 hours, then it's basically a 72-hour window where the sharks can slowly die. Nets are even worse. And your comment about nets, there's two different types of nets, and we need to be very careful in how we distinguish them. There are exclusion nets, which are good. They're used in very few places, though, because they require a very specific set of environmental conditions to work in. What we have mostly in Australia, and not always, we do have some exclusion nets, but for the most part, we have beach mesh nets, which are finite measures. So they're um, a couple hundred meters long. They don't reach the surface or the bottom, or sometimes they might reach one or the other, but they don't reach both. So sharks can swim under them, over them, or around them. And 40% of the sharks that we find that are caught by these nets are on the beach side. So they've come in on the side of the beach, possibly up to the beach, and then are on their way back out to sea when they're caught. And again, they're designed as lethal measures. And these nets catch 
everything. They can catch birds that are diving. They catch fish, turtles, whales, dolphins, sharks. They're designed to catch certain sharks, so the potentially dangerous ones. But the vast majority of sharks that they catch are not considered either the size that they should be or are non-threatening species. So there's just so much mortality, and they're extremely non-targeted towards sharks. The overwhelming proportion of what they catch is not target species. Again, they're very destructive, and occasionally the nets get washed away in storms or high seas, heavy currents, and then they become ghost nets, and we don't know what sort of damage they're doing. So these are all things that we have to consider, and again, they're very misunderstood. A lot of times we don't know what mitigation measures are being employed in our own oceans. There have been surveys to show that people think that there are nets when, in fact, there aren't. The public just has a very poor perception of the mitigation measures that are being used and what they actually do. And another thing that comes up in terms of these devices is whether the people who do know that they're there are then feeling a false sense of security. So do they think, okay, well, I'm quite happy to go swimming on this beach because there's a net. I can see the buoys out there, so there's a net deployed. I know that. Not realizing that 40% of the sharks come in towards shore before they are then caught. So they don't catch everything. We know that they don't catch everything. And some of the measures, not the nets and drumlines, but some mitigation measures have been shown to have about 20% efficacy in actually potentially mitigating a risk. So it's very far from guaranteed. And people just don't realize these things. They automatically think, okay, well, we're being protected. Again, it's it's very complex, and there's a lot that goes into it. The other thing that makes it really difficult to argue against, especially in terms of governments, for example, in Queensland, who say, well, we've got a great safety rating. There's been very few bites on these beaches where we have these things deployed. But it's impossible to say what would happen otherwise. You cannot employ control measures for any of these things. None of the mitigation measures allow for control. So it's very difficult to argue them. And this is something that both sides of the argument fall back on. Well, you can't prove that they're effective. Yes, but you can't prove that they're not effective. So it adds that extra level of complexity, and the debate continues. That is the voice of Dr. Blake Chapman. We are recording here at her home in Brisbane, Australia. And Blake is the current Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic. Blake, Dr. Chapman... Thank you so much for your time and energy and what you're doing as being a voice for the sharks globally. Thank you also for your time and energy joining me here today on The Trail Less Traveled. Thank you so much for coming out and for letting me have my chance to talk to you. It's been really good, and I certainly hope that we can help get the message across. Blake, let's end your show with three bits of advice that you can share with the listener. I think my advice is be honest, be brave, and follow your passion because... It's hard. And if you don't follow your passion, you're not going to have that motivation. But when you're passionate about something and you're really following that passion, that's when things happen and you make them happen. And it's an incredible feeling. Awesome. And what song would you like to end your show with? The Chainsmokers, something just like this. Mm -hmm. It talks about how you don't have to be a hero to achieve things. So you just go out there and you do your best. And it, yeah, it doesn't take a hero. It just takes someone who is dedicated and who's motivated and who wants to do something. And that's where, that's where change is going to come from. Namaste, Missoula, and listeners around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. 
an adventure series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world. You can subscribe to the free podcast wherever you gather podcasts, and consider visiting traillesstraveled.net to see pictures, archive previous episodes, and contact me. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Dr. Blake Chapman. Dr. Blake Chapman has been researching sharks in Australia for over 15 years. She is the Sharks Editor-at-Large for Australian Geographic. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Has Traveled. The Trail Has Traveled was reported at the Missoula Broadcasting Company nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world, in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. Tonight's episode was recorded in Caloundra, Australia. It's the Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. Every Sunday night at 6, Mountain Time. And you can stream it online at trail1033.com. My adventure tip this week comes from Regan Gordon in Caloundra, Australia. Hi, my name is Regan Gordon. We're in Caloundra, Australia. I'm an artist, adventurer, and adrenaline seeker. And my tip is always bear in mind the geographical features of the places that you travel in as sometimes these particular features will be the indication of how to realign your position or recalibrate your bearings. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as we know, the gnar does not shred itself. (laughs) 